Okay, so thank you everyone for being so patient. Um, and thank you for coming out to this poetry reading. Um, I want to welcome you all. And before we get started, I just wanted to let you know that we have lots of wonderful poetry programs and other kinds of programs at the Pratt all year round. Um, this poetry and conversation event, we do this, I think, about every other month now. And in March, for example, we have um, three poets reading on March 11th. We have Stephen Leva, Rebecca Remington, and also John Nieves. That should be really fun evening, so I hope you'll come back for that. And we also have a poetry contest going on right now, a totally free contest. Um, and there's a flyer on the table in the back if you're interested in that. And also in the back, if you sign up for our poetry program email list, you can find out about poetry programs all the time. And there's a general programming email list as well. <clears throat> okay, so um, how we're going to do this is um, each poet is going to read for about 20 minutes, um, and then we're going to have some Q&A where the poets will sit at the table and take your questions, and then they're going to read some closing poems, and then at the end, uh, please feel free to mingle and buy their books. And I'm just going to begin by introducing Kim Jensen. Kim Jensen is a writer, educator, and political activist whose books include The Woman I Left Behind, Bread Alone, and The Only Thing That Matters. Her fiction, poems, and essays have appeared in many journals and anthologies. Her recent doctoral dissertation in creative writing is a post-September 11th novel called Forget Jerusalem. Active in the peace and justice movement for many years, especially the struggle for Palestinian liberation, Kim is Associate Professor of English at the Community College of Baltimore County, where she is the founding director of the Community Book Connection, an interdisciplinary literacy initiative that demonstrates the vital connection between classroom learning and broader social issues. For me, reading Kim Jensen's poems can feel like playing a game of hide-and-seek, where I am not sure whether I'm hiding or seeking, or getting lost in a forest like the one in this passage. A child once offered this, home is where the secret is. Then she disappeared into God's dark woods. A fairy tale gone haywire, an anti-parable, an unsolvable mystery, these lines about the disappearing child are a good example of how Kim's poetry, with its kaleidoscopic shifts, haunting music, and playful irony, excites, surprises, and mystifies. When we finish reading a poem by Kim Jensen, we feel much more awake than usual and closer to freedom. She writes, in the dream, my body rose from its sleep and dreamed it owned a different mind than mine. Please help me to welcome Kim Jensen. Hi. Can you hear me? Okay. Is that good? So thank you, Shailene, for that um, beautiful introduction. I really appreciate the fact that you read that book and, and commented on it. Um, I'm not going to actually be reading from the book that she commented on tonight, um, but I have some more poems in the oral tradition that read better out loud, I think, to share with you. Um, I apologize for, I'm a little bit 
nervous because there was an accident on the 83, and I'm still a little wrought up from it, so I'm hoping that reading is going to... Did you catch the, the accident, too? So my heart is still kind of beating from, beating from thinking I was going to be late, so hopefully I'll just begin to catch my stride. But, yeah, thank you, Shailene, for inviting me for doing that introduction. Thank you, Judy. Where's Judy for for hosting this, and also to Elmaz for coming to Baltimore to um, co-read together. And um, so as I was trying to think of what I was going to do today, I decided to go with a kind of bridal theme. And the bridal theme is something old, something new, something borrowed, and something blue. Um, so that'll be, that kind of was the, the guiding motif for my selections tonight. A lot of world events that are on my mind sort of maybe shaped that selection. And um, as for the something blue, I think it's going to be a lot of blue, which is a character flaw of mine, and people in the room who know me know that. So with no further ado, I'm going to start with an old one called Bad Poetry Night. And it is uh, a fictional, completely fictional, imaginary open mic night. Some names have been changed. It's called Bad Poetry Night. It's Bad Poetry Night at the Arbitrarium. Aces are high, deuces too, tears crash into text, and yes, a metaphor is born, and another is born and aborted. It's Bad Poetry Night. Stuff like the tender caress of memory and torn river of my body. Peace, I loved you like a storm. By the way, all the bad poetry lines are my lines. I just put them in here. It's bad poetry night, and all the whacked out faces are lit by the glow of their phones. Murky resemblances of humans wash in the door. A woman trembling, a dusty old man the street coughed up, a little Spanish kid saying, look, duck, somos todos bad poets. But there's more about the ten toes of a bathtub which keep it afloat in the better homes and how the elevator shaft was all ears when the child fell but didn't live to tell ten stories. And now, sitting on a girl backwards is a lone gentleman caller whose actions speak louder than poems. And nobody here doesn't think it isn't necessary for just one more aesthetically effed up run in the mouth should never have been written verse. And it's too late anyway. So it happens that a man in a dress says, Human greed has made us all into monsters. And a woman reads, where are the boundaries of the wind? Where is the bottom of this night? A long-haired man takes the stand and screams, you don't bomb the people, you don't bomb the people, you don't bomb the people. And another whispers, it's the race for angels. It's the faux-finished decor in the rehab suite, where the walls are designed to look like they're the ones crumbling. It's the retreat of wisdom into little books on little shelves on Cathedral Street. And I don't know if it's a bad night for poetry or just a bad night. The Mystery. At least six skirmishes in a car weren't enough to make me turn my back on love. Once, a man tried to kiss me and his teeth turned to sequins in my mouth. Something hard to reconcile. I spit them out. Years later, snow taps in the tree branches, and I wonder how something that small still makes a mark. 
This is called Summer Attack, and this is actually from 2006. Some of the poems here, unfortunately, are regarding wars that are in old times and yet keep recycling themselves, and so unfortunately the poems never go out of date. This was from the attack on Lebanon in 2006, which was simultaneously accompanied by an attack on Gaza as well. Summer attack. Of course the cat is dying to get outside. Who wouldn't want to escape the invasion of artificial colors, 24-hour newscasts of this summer's latest war? Calling it the latest doesn't make it less criminal. Meanwhile, all international efforts are keenly focused on breaking the cycle of fat. And diplomatic efforts are tuned to the perfection of dental awareness, which means learning to scream and smile at the same time. The masters have mastered the art of the renovation of perception, reframing a picture of sleeping children to appear as nothing more than future enemies. The camera flies so high that all of Lebanon and Palestine is now but a dot on the screen. A tiny target, after all. Naturally, I follow the cat out of the situation room. It's 2 a.m. Insects hum in the cool air. SOS. The projection called Women in War goes on and on forever. Charred sequences, blackened slides. It takes a while for our eyes to get used to the dark. Veiled women take control of transmission tower and send word, a thicket of scrambled codes. Lilac and Benadryl is how it sounds from here. We can only see what we've been trained to see and have ears to and hear what we have ears to hear. The code word is Arlington. The code word is not Arlington. It opens doors to rooms where you find women weeping. The code word is the opposite of glass. Apertures fill with rain. Birdsong in the willow. An upsurge of winter grass. Once you abandon the story, the story also abandons you, and all becomes a fiction, the axis on which God and godlessness spin. The code word is nothing, opens to nothing, a vein filled with the beating of wings, a gruff shred of sound, a dialogue with monstrosity. What was our continent called when all the continents were once sewed together? All land was one land, all seas, one sea. It is not the sundering, it is the drift that's impossible to see and resist. Wow, there's a lot of sad poems here. I'm thinking I should skip ahead. Let me do, let me do the, some continuity after eight Bush years. This is a poem that I wrote during the 2008 2009 bombing of Gaza right before Obama was to be taking um, the presidency. It was in that interval of, of time, actually very carefully planned. And this is the poem. And it actually um, could be used just as well for what happened in Gaza this summer. Some continuity after eight Bush years. There were many secrets that were not secrets, many lips filled with lies. Our eyes began to slide down our faces and necks until finally they were hidden in the toes of our shoes. It was easy to see we were at a low point. 
Then arrived a savior on a steed, a man whose brand was hope, a shining man whose measured words floated to the surface of 20 generations of tyranny, who inspired millions to believe that America could actually change. Never has such an eloquent leader been so silent as when the bombs began to fall on Gaza, our Gaza. But bombs don't fall. Leaves fall, rain falls, snow, the Dow Jones Industrial Average falls. Bombs are delivered on satellite-guided missions from us, from the U.S. of us, to cut down the most innocent and most deprived. It's been refined before 1984. Oh, my God. It's been refined since before 1492, using brutality to subdue people who refuse and refuse and refuse to comply with the order that might makes right. We saw craters that used to be homes, scars that were schools, ruins that were once safety zones, white phosphorus burns on the faces of such beautiful people, crushed skulls, fingers, legs, bones, children decapitated in the rubble, babies cradled in the arms of corpses that were once their mothers. And if we didn't see, we weren't looking, and if we didn't understand it, we weren't thinking. And if we claim equal blame between victor and victim, colonizer and colonized, occupier and occupied, then we don't deserve a new president anyway. America, pull your eyes out of your socks and put them back in your sockets. Stop waiting for someone to arrive to save us from this disgrace of Gaza, gray Gaza, poor Gaza, Warsaw Gaza, wounded Gaza, outgunned Gaza, Geronimo, Geronimo Gaza, Gaza, the last war of King George, the first war of the new president riding on his white, white horse. Sunday. This is a letter. Dear someone, take your foot off the head of my brother. Your body will seem lighter on a bright morning when church bells sound in your aortic valve. Wind will carry them in like oxygen. It's called Napoleonic Poem. It can happen that one night you find yourself skiing through a pedestrian mall in the middle of Paris as snow falls on the glass roof, a luminous parasol above the Champs-Élysées. And it can happen that you wake up and say, shit, I'm in Baltimore. (laughs) And you remember the nine kids cut down this week, all within ten minutes of your street. Two teens who fought then shot, a high school sophomore pistol whipped at a bus stop, a man mad at his ex who drowned his three kids one after the next in a bathtub at a hotel at the Inner Harbor. Our shrine of progress, our flotilla of diversions, an armada of Sunday pleasures, where we grab a snack and plant a buck in the outstretched hat of the juggling clown, the Peruvian musical duo. El Condor Paso echoes above choppy waves toward the water taxi parades, and we love it. An urban place to walk with lots of urban shops and lots of cops. And the skyline amplifies the sad whispers of an ordinary night. The sugary neon signs of empire. Empire. And it's only missing one piece. The arch of triumph. L'Arc de Triomphe. Presiding over the western end of Pratt. And on it we'll inscribe the names of the generals and the titans who made it all possible. And beneath it, will entomb the unknown soldier from the Napoleonic Wars of Baltimore.
This is called Too Much Sadness. I want you to rock me on this rainy day. Rock me on your body to the rhythm of raindrops. The silent music of birds sheltered beneath eaves of maple leaves. A car passes on the damp street. Somewhere, someone is dying. Some place, a war is breaking. But how can I care at this forlorn hour? So far, it's been my will to hold the universe together. To have been the glue, the cord, the canvas winding around the minutes and days. To have been sturdy and indestructible for the sake of others. And now, I don't know anymore. What do I know at this hour of my breaking? I want you to rock me on your body into the evening as the white sky turns gray. I'll rock you and whisper words of love and we'll bury our sorrow for a while. Our music will play, our secrets will be safe. There's too much sadness in this world. I want you to rock me on this rainy day. Good? Okay. They've gotten so good at spying, they can now read my mind. The cat makes a puddle on the rug. Within seconds, the call comes in. It's the carpet cleaning company. Not a sentient being on the phone, but a mechanical troll. They've gotten so good at distraction, even the poets have whiplash, following the news cycle on its sprint across the screen. Did someone say sprint? The call comes in. They want to know if we want to switch providers. Everything bears looking at, the voice says. Everything bears looking at, except for faces which hold too much information. So we can no longer bear to study the passage of the shadow across the sundial, a recurrent theme, as is war, muscling into every conversation, all to obscure the fact that we're still equipped to give our hearts just one time, just once. So take a screenshot when it happens. And once it's frozen, uploaded, and posted, the call will come in. And this time, there will be no one. A shake in the house, a sparrow of an ache, a conversation with white noise. Let's see. This is called Buy One, Get One Free. Someday, if the world doesn't burn first, a fragment of this poem will wind up in a glass case in a place like the British Museum, along with the Elgin marbles, medieval clockworks, the whimsical burial harps of ore. A battered scrap will be displayed in the 20th century room, an arm's reach from a plastic slinky, and some clippings from the thinning locks of John McCain. Rest assured, the docent will get it all wrong. With her tidy hair and quiet shoes, she'll recite from a script about an empire, an era of rapid rise and rapid decline. A spastic culture of incredible inventiveness that always witnessed itself through the wrong end of the lens. Note, she says, the contrasting vocab, the emphasis on irony, the sense of doom inscribed in the diction. What did they believe in back then, someone will ask. She has a ready answer. They believed in war. They believed in leisure. They believed in buy one, get one free. All these years later, she still sort of likes that phrase. It has a ring to it. The tour is over. 
She pulls an umbrella from the crook of her arm and walks out into the London rain. A man on the sidewalk asks for the time. A drop of water lands on her wrist, and she's overcome by sadness. She would have liked to hear Miles Davis live. She would have liked to go on a road trip, just she and her Bobby McGee. She always dreamed of trying one of those roller coaster rides. She's seen the pictures, to rise up to the highest heights. Then plummet down at the speed of sound, abandoned to the mercy of gravity, to feel the rattle of the tracks and the whistle all around. To shriek and smile and shriek and smile and shriek and smile all at the same time. I want to end this segment with a poem that I wrote for my husband, who's in Los Angeles right now with our daughter. Um, so... We may have some time to read at the end, but I'll sort of wrap this, this bit up here. Uh, it's called Sitting Fire. He was a Palestinian man. He didn't want to normalize with anyone or anything. There was nothing normal about being born to a time of a single question. Not if, but when. Insomnia, a recurrent symptom. The usual national maladies, aches and allergies. And these were just the ailments that began with the letter A. He was a Palestinian man. His skeleton was formed from a series of disappointments that rattled each time he spoke. Disjointed, he stood his ground while the world conspired to erase him. He didn't want to normalize with those who didn't care to know the quatrains of his exile, the tafasil of his estrangement. A flag, or the shadow of a flag, always whipped across his features. Abu Bisan, Abu Ahlam, stubborn as clay, gentle as rain. In Chinese characters, you could write his name as sitting fire. Who knew that a sedentary flame could burn so free? But his compass never strayed from the cardinal directions, the martyr and the refugee. His heartbeat was timed to the cadence of Makawama. Ask me how the resistance is doing. I'll tell you how I am. This is how he loved, with a tight grip, so you could never forget. This is how he cooked, for everyone plus one. Do unto was coated like the struggle in his blood. His song was a fugue played on a single strand of the oud. A single strand for a single question. Not if, but when. You're the unlucky lover. If you never knew the warmth of his lips, if you never drank from the brimming cup of his soul, if you never wetted your sword on the grit of that stony will, unlucky you are if you never found shelter inside the perpetual restlessness of his yearning. Thank you. Thanks. We'll be back in a bit. Thank you. That was really wonderful. Um, okay, so now I'm going to introduce Elmaz. Elmaz Abinader is an award-winning author, poet, and playwright whose works are inspired by the dislocation of her parents from Lebanon to the U.S., as well as dislocations, occupations, and disenfranchisement of other people in the Arab world and diaspora. She has been a Fulbright Scholar to Egypt, has conducted writing workshops in Palestine, and has toured several countries with her one-woman plays. 
She is also a professor of English at Mills College in Oakland, California, where she specializes in creative nonfiction, memoir, poets of color, and pedagogy. She co-founded Vona Voices in 1999 with a mission to nurture developing writers of color. This House, My Bones, her new collection of poetry, is the 2014 editor's selection in poetry at Willow Books Aquarius Press. Elmas has a beautiful poem called Ascension that captures some of the essential qualities of her writing. In this poem, she's searching among shards of cement for traces of the lost. Her concentration on sensuous detail, on what we embrace, not just with our hearts, but with all five senses, makes the lost vivid. We see a crusty coffee cup. We are reminded not just of revolutionaries, but of bread makers, and then of one particular lost person named Mahmoud. I stand in the square and call for you, she says to him, and something wonderful happens here. She literally calls for Mahmoud, lends him her voice. This is what Elmaz always does, lends her voice to others with a very great generosity and with great effect. How lucky we are to hear her voice today. Please help me to welcome Elmaz Abinader. I want, I want Shailene to be my designated reader from now on because that was such a beautiful uh, rendering of my work. And I want to thank Judy and the library for having me here. And I want to say to the people of Baltimore, cherish this library. It is the most beautiful. I mean, I'm from California where they're closing all the branches. So the old people and the young people are not getting to the libraries now. When I walked into this building, first of all, it's a gorgeous building. And then I saw it so busy on a Sunday. It was, oh, it was like just romantic to me. It was something feels like out of the past because I live in this place where they're closing everything down and there's no public transportation to get anywhere. So I feel very uh, encouraged by the fact that the Pratt is so beautiful and is doing such beautiful programming. And I really, really appreciate being here. And all I'm saying to you, Baltimore, fight to keep this open no matter what happens. So that's, that's my first flag that I'm going to wave. I love reading with Kim. Um, and we've been on other pro panels and programs together, but this is the first time I think we've read in, in the same program. So, so many of your themes kept resonating with so many of mine. Um, this book, this is my third book, and it's kind of an experiment that I did in talking about how natural elements will change the earth. You know, erosions and tides and volcanoes and stuff change the earth, and man-made atrocities, let's say, also change the earth, but they also change the terrain of our bodies. And so this book is about how those things are connected, how the terrain of our bodies and the terrain of the earth get affected by the kinds of things that we do to the world. Um, <clears throat> and the first um, poem is about the hyphen. And um, there's a great uh, saying by Toni Morrison, American means white. Everyone else has to hyphenate. So uh, I did, <laughs> I did a, a little poem about the hyphen called In the Throat. And it's called In the Throat One because I have three In the Throat poems. If I could speak, the hyphen making space between the word and what it needs, then I could learn how this body can inhabit two worlds. 
a cable surging power from one land to the next. I could verbalize a delicacy of reference, elbow the comma to clarify that I am not recent but a longtime resident holding a steady job, not belonging to an unworthy society. Simplified by the colon that factualizes my history to be concurrent with yours, despite that my name could be translated not to the same tongue, perhaps explains that many things are true. I am connected without conjunction, and the woman with my face died with all our names woven under her hair. All right, the second poem is um, also referential to the 2006 invasion of Gaza and Lebanon. And one of the things I was trying to imagine was existence with bombers over your head almost 24-7. And the poem is called A A Tear in the Sky, but it also can be read as A Tear in the Sky. And it's from the point of view of a father. I fail to distinguish what is solid and what is liquid. Rock hard is not reliable. The wind cannot diminish an already dying face at the broken window errant meteors, a surge of rockets collapse the sky. I pray with my cheek to the ground. My God seeps into my pores, shrouded hand and temple, forehead marked as I am marked, undeniable allegiance to the foundation on which I stand. Children do not sleep, do not play without fight, avert our gaze from what is missing, Fragment adrift in rock, boulder, knobs, shards of glass. Nothing more surrounds me, each of us an open sea. We make bargains with the heaven to stop. Voice my whisper, rise up my story. Include the name of this land as the home of my father. The country inherit my children, and it would never be undone. But we swallow the earth closer to our own death. One of the things I'm convinced, especially about the recent um, activities, let's just say, in in, uh, France, is that we often use, or not we, but the media and the social world, often use events to justify an already existing prejudice or, or set of racist values. And the way that became clear to me, or or more clear to me, was I was in the airport, and there's something really invasive about CNN being in your eye no matter what you do. I'm going to get a coffee. There's CNN. I'm going to get a magazine. There's CNN. I'm going to fall asleep in my chair. There's CNN. So the report yesterday as I was walking through, um, because they're one of the women who was involved in the supermarket bombing or the supermarket hostage taking, they, they, it was a woman because it was a woman. Worldwide terrorism now dominated by women. That was the report. Like they just really wanted to make a news item a about this one woman, and the expectation of it just became so huge. And, you know, the CNN person is very serious and, you know, doing this worldwide, and they have a shadow of a woman in the back veiled with a gun. You know, it's no specific woman, but the dummy terrorism, Islamic terrorist woman, X, terrorism, terrorism woman, X. So I have this poem about a reading that I did in Philadelphia with a friend, my only friend in my MFA program at Columbia. Columbia hated me. I got my MFA program at Columbia, and they're like, 
why are you writing about these cultural stuff? Write about a tree. I mean, they really hated me. And uh, so this one person who was my friend, my only friend, Donna, Donna Wolf, was, is Jewish. And Donna got this grant to bring me from California to come and read in this Jewish Arab reading. And um, it had no political overtones except in the world where Jewish and Arab together in the room have political overtones. And it was held at the Friends Meeting House. But there was an expectation of problems. So this is what that poem, this poem is about. At the Friends Meeting House, 4th and Arch, Philadelphia, we stood, Arab and Jew, poetry lying flat on a podium. The wooden benches crossed the room like musical lines, dotted with notes, flat, sharp, minor chord, and natural. We began our hymns, Zimrat and Nasheed, histories, convictions, invocations. Something in the air was pollinating, a quick, silent buzzing, an unforgettable murmur. A crack of light, a door widened, flattened open, and barrowed in two policemen summoned for the idea of us two in embroidered blouses and fringed shawls and a fissure in the hearts where poems were created, willing to show ourselves to others and ourselves. We stopped, waited, while the director hustled them away as if the electricity had gone out, an emergency that would be taken care of. A clear room that had lost its innocence in one brief moment, one momentary violation. Hushed by candlelight, the energy of sorrow was bigger. So, the, the number of things bring me to Maryland, and one of them is down the street in uh, Silver Spring, and that's my dad. My dad is 104. <laughs> he lives alone and has a garden and walks to church. Well, he's not walking to church as much, but he was at the time of this poem. And uh, he, he wants to stay independent. He said to me on the phone the other day, I want to drive again. <laughs> going... Uh, no, you can't. <laughs> no, you don't get to drive. Sorry. Um, my mother died several years ago. And one of the things that uh, occurs to me about my dad's existence or what's wrong with living to 104 is there's an incredible loneliness. Like his next door neighbor is 35 years younger than him, and that's still an old person. You know, so there's an incredible loneliness. So I wrote this right before his 100th birthday. And it, it kind of addresses how that life is rolling out. Birthday. When he turns 100 next year, we will celebrate that he continues to live without wife, job, country. Without friends who can speak to him like brothers in the old language that he diluted like Raubi. Into the milk of English, the big jug from Giant, hoping the Lubin will taste the same, texture smooth, but it never does. We will celebrate the strength of his legs, go up and down those stairs 20 times a day, the muscularity of his back and shoulders, his reach up to the high shelf to get the good coffee when we come to visit, show us pictures he forgot he had, hoping we are titillated by the story. He will start then and there because it's something he knows. We love the stories, and the old pe people can tell them and he is particularly good. 
We try to be children to him in our own age with memories banging in the gray sleeplessness of morning. We want to be guardians hoping on alert he will never need that kind of care, his body, or know that heart will not become like its hearing faint and unsure, faking it half the time. We do not understand there are conversations he will never have again across parallel lines, absolute familiarity, referentially intact. His memory is not going. They think the old ones cannot remember, but he remembers it all. He has lived with longing and silence and no pity given or received. His ear tilts toward the singing in church, the phone calls in regular intervals, and we are happy to hear his voice. Imagine him at the desk shouting into the phone with big buttons and a list of our numbers beside it. We crank out the Arabic, try Baba to enunciate it in the jubbly way, to take you to your country if only for one call. We are ghosts in his dull ears, reminding him he is alive and not lost. Our life these 100 years. Um, hmm. I have one more poem. This poem is really important to me, and I try to read it at every um, poetry reading. If I can find the marker in here, I thought I did a good job, but I guess I didn't. Um, I'm old enough to remember how horrified this country was at the idea of the Berlin Wall and how joyful we were at the demolishing of it, at the destruction of the Berlin Wall. And yet, and you know where I'm going with this, a wall exists in Palestine that we don't seem to have outrage about, and we finance without conscience. So this poem is about, just on a kind of cartographical level, the complications of having something like a wall. I grew up on the Pennsylvania-West Virginia border in a small town of 700 people, so not far from here. And I lived in one of those towns where you could just walk into somebody's back door. So the poem starts there, and then it moves to, to Palestine. It's called Climb Up and Over. Our garden bordered an alley which crossed into a hayfield that stretched to a hillside. Our yard had lilacs that surrounded a pond filled with sweet peas and crested by vines. Our porch led to a street that lined the road running from our house all the way to West Virginia. And we walked from one house to Neff Woods, from another to the waterfall across a bridge. The coal mining corner of Pennsylvania, with all its faults, let cows chew from this neighbor to the next, and children cross yards that were not theirs to get to school and sit on steps of someone's porch without asking. And we didn't know that this was belonging. This was Pennsylvania, and not Abu Dis, where a wall was erected right down Main Street, keeping the kids away from the school they've been going to their whole lives. So what do they do, they wonder, like the farmers of Azun whose vegetable fields, olive trees, are out of reach, who stare at the 25 feet of stone and wire guarding them from their own food as a security measure that forces a four-kilometer walk to get in a gate that gives them 20 minutes to slip over to the other side for bushes, bushels of barley, 
to take home if it's still there. Or if you live in the Anata district in East Jerusalem, it's probably not. Some things had to move to make room for the wall, and without your home, everyone is more secure. The landscape is sliced, and lands are carved and contained. I have studied maps. The blue waters and the green mountains, yellow countries and red ones, all meant something to the cartographers, uh, and I follow them. A puzzle of colors explained in the legend in the corner that said this was the earth. Lakes, mountains, cliffs, buttes, highways, hiking trails, one-way streets, capitals, borders, mileage counters, oceans, rivers snaking through states and countries, rangers peeking across the Urals, frozen tundra, pampas, veldt, thickly populated cities, railroad tracks. I run my finger along each symbol, each road designation, each color, each touchstone. How do you mark a barrier? Make it part of the landscape. What is the symbol of restraint? What is the color of confinement, loss, disruption, and separation, of sorrow? How do you hold that pen, diagram the atlas, sketch the captivity? This is not the wall of the great march to liberation, just a slow death to the earth that inhabits it and the people who make it home. Thank you. Um, so uh, we're going to have a little bit of a Q&A period now, and um, we welcome your questions for the poets. Um, so this is for both of you, but to preface, Elmas, you and I were discussing earlier today about how you wrote your newest volume of poetry, and you sort of apprenticed yourself to Adrian Rich and the writing of it. And so I was wondering if you wanted to explain that process, and maybe in also how poets, we apprentice ourselves to different writers, but also ge geographical spaces and political movements. And so, Kim, perhaps you have a similar process. That'd be really interesting to hear about as well. Well, I'll start since you brought up the Audrey Rich connection. When she died a few years ago, I decided to go back through her work, uh, all of it. And I just, I think I found every single poem she'd ever written that's available to me and it was an education in being playful but not um, technical with language, being open with politics. She was a pro-Palestinian Jewish feminist writer. Um, she was direct in her political statements and yet universal in them. They covered a lot of, uh, I would say, large themes. So what happened during that, and it was during uh, uh, April's Poetry Month, so I was determined to write a poem a day. So what happened was it brought me to look at everything about poetry rather than just my presence on the stage or my response to a moment, which I've written a lot of poems that aren't in this book that are responses to the moments that we have experienced from 9-11 to not evacuating Americans out of Lebanon when the um, uh, invasion occurred in 2006. I have a lot of those poems that are very fresh into the moment, but Adrian Rich's poetry reminded me that the political poetry I write can have a universal like umbrella that talks about the themes of justice and injustice of confinement and loss. And while I teach that, 
my poetry practice had become so performative that I had forgotten how to sit down and get you know, craft heavy with my work, and it was a wonderful return. It was almost like a, a love affair with poems all over again because my major writing has been in memoir. Um, so that was part of it. But I have to say I'm also never inspired by one thing or just by poetry alone. I'm also inspired by music and painting. And the first poem, which is a very long poem, was inspired by an architect who had these amazing ideas that if you go out into the world and you just start to draw, you draw the truth. And so I've been inspired and, and stimulated by people across arts and crafts and in kitchens and making bread in stone basements. And so it's, it's, uh, it's broad, uh, how this book came to be is broad. But the moment of re-education came from that summer with Adrian Rich. So it's interesting because um, when I was in graduate school many years ago, I actually put myself face-to-face -face in a um, kind of an internship with Fanny Howe, who is an American mm. poet and novelist. And the book that Shailene um, introduced me with, and that's, that's for sale back there, but I didn't read from tonight, is actually an entire record of the interaction that I had with Fanny Howe's work. So um, what I, I and actually there was a mathematical formula that I used. I actually took the vocabulary from her, from several of her books, and then matched it with my own vocabulary and created these new new poems. Because I was uh, at the time I was going through things in my life that she and she was the first woman author that I had ever read that intuitively and had struck this chord. And there was something that I felt like it was really worthwhile immersing myself in this um, in this year-long study of her work and, and interaction with her work. So yeah, I think we have a lot to learn from from poets that that we admire. But I'm like Elmaz. Since that time, that was many years ago. Since that time, I find I'm more of a magpie, and I I read and I pick up. And I also think that someone I read recently, and I can't remember who it was, who said that poetry is by its nature occasional. It's an occasional thing, and I do find that it's always an occasion, um, often a sad occasion, that, that gets all of the, the pieces uh, together to, to kind of conspire to bring me to the point of writing a poem. Um, but certainly Fanny Howe's a huge influence, but I would say if I really think about it, um, funny thing is, and I'm going to write a poem about this, um, all the communist poets are the poets I end up being drawn to, or who have been in the Communist Party, or who have been a member, or affiliates, or fellow travelers. People like Nazem Hikmet, the great Turkish poet, Roque Dalton, the El Salvadorian poet, Mahmoud Darwish, who's, who got his early start in the Israeli Communist Party. Something about their language, their accessibility, the love, the way they weave politics, and the, and the personal, I continue to find um, a model that we can learn from. Other questions? I was actually um, thinking since you just were talking about political poets as a model, um, we had another poetry and conversation event where Ailish Hopper um, was here, the poet, and she was saying that uh, sometimes people, poets in America, seem to feel they need to apologize almost for writing political poetry, um, and that whereas in other cultures, poets are kind of called to, I mean, that's part of your mission as a poet. I was wondering if you ever, how you felt about people describing your work as 
political or I mean do you think we should um, <laughs> is is that do you think we need to change our ideas about that as a label for poetry yeah, it did, it did make sense because I think um, what you're, what's at the heart of that question is part of calling something political is diminishing it and saying that it's topical and for the day. And uh, my work actually that I do is to change the notion of that. At the Vona workshop, which you talked about earlier, I teach a class called Political Content and Story Memoir and Poem. This is a workshop to writers of color. And one of the things I teach them is how to universalize a, a political story or political moment in a story. And I, so when people call my poetry political or me a poet or even me an Arab poet or an Arab American poet or a feminist poet, I said, yes, that's the description as well as, and then, you know, it's, it's included in the description of what I am. And what I'm hoping that we see, and we're never going to see poetry become a popular art, because right now, did you know, this is a, a side note, did you know that a judge upheld a ruling that there could be an IQ cap on police officers, like this one person was too smart to be a police officer, and so he sued, and the judge upheld the ruling that Yes, you can say that a certain IQ is too high to be a police officer. So we're kind of in a praising ignorance time right now in our popular society, which, of course, will create a stronger feeling for intellectualism. It'll work, you know, the other way around eventually, if hopefully in my lifetime. But what I'm trying to also imagine is that we can have a continuum of poetry, that can we have spoken word political poetry on the continuum that includes language literary poetry. We can have that as one idea of what poetry is, and the idea of dividing those things is actually a way of diminishing what poetry can be. It's like saying music can only be classical. It can't also be, well, it shouldn't be Iggy Azalea, but it also can't be Beyonce, right? Um, so why, why do we do that to poetry? Why are we so afraid of it being strong and having all this inclusion? That, to me, is the question. Gosh, it's such a, it's a, it's such a big question. Politics, I mean, I would, I'd be inclined to say everything is political, and some people choose to make it overt and tap into that voice and, 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 if you're a person who's at all conscientious, if you're conscious of the world, if you're involved, if you're engaged, if you're committed to some, some idea that's just beyond your own, own self, it's going to naturally work its way in, whether super overtly, or uh, in, in the case of a lot of my poems, or in subtle ways. And so um, I, I think it's absurd to sort of quarantine any kind of, of, of politics or even to try to. But I have to say, I mean... I find sometimes, for my own self personally, I don't judge other poets based on any kind of parameters of how political they are, but I find personally, I do sort of feel sad because I know that, like the poems I shared with you guys, they have a lot of um, heavy content, and it's sort of who I am because, and part of it for me is the fact of shape, being shaped by um, being married to a Palestinian man and being involved in that movement and the news constantly being. Um, in general, pretty grim, and being connected with Middle Eastern politics and, and being involved in social issues, that those things rise to the forefront in my mind, and I, and I write about them. Um, that's what I do. <laughs> I think it's... Uh, I, but I also... Um, I think that great poetry is that, that 
culmination of, of what's out in the world and what's in you, and that's what we all aspire to. This is for Elmaz. Were you or your father in Lebanon at the time of the Shatila massacre? At the it was time. September 1982. I was in Nablus in Israel at the time, and we had to leave that area and go up to Haifa or Tel Aviv to get away from the fact that they were stoning tourist buses. Yeah, um, w- my father immigrated in 37 and has only come, gone back occasionally. However, I have a lot, a lot, a lot of family who was there, and they had to keep moving out of the center of Beirut and move up into the mountains, and that was, a, that was the worst. I mean, the, the war was pretty bad for its entire 15 years, but that was the worst year. And um, I'm actually writing a novel now that takes place during the Lebanese Civil War, and I've researched the entire war. I pretty much know everything, and I've gone to Lebanon, and I've interviewed people. And um, it was a moment in Beirut where people could not believe it. They couldn't believe it. It was like Lebanese are in denial because they feel like they can party through anything. You know, I taught my my dentist actually went to AUB, American University of Beirut, to dental school, and he went during the Civil War. And I said, "Well, what was it like?" He said, "Well, we just moved the party down the beach every time." But in '82, that was like the 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 landing of reality on top of their heads, and then they had to start living like they were in a war. And so, um, while we weren't there, I have a lot of connection to it through all of that those interviews and and. Um, research that I did. Also, just one more question. Because I'm so interested in ancient history, and you have a, some ruins there called Baalbek, Baalbek which yeah. I would love to have gone to sometime in my travels, but never have been able to be there at the time. Uh, I was passing by maybe in Syria, which wasn't too far away, mm-hmm. because we couldn't go there because it was dangerous. I just wonder, how is that being kept up at this time? Uh, Lebanon ha- is a bounce-back economy, and it's totally revitalizing on those ways. Like, there are neighborhoods that will never be rebuilt, but to get to the, the tourist industry up to snuff is really important because that's part of... They're a service industry. They service the, the finances of the area, mm-hmm. and then they're a tourist area. And um, so Balbek is, you know, operational. Biblos is operational, Jeddah is operational. I have to tell you, one of my... I want to tell you about a high moment at Balbek. You've seen pictures, right, with those big... Oh, yeah. They used to put international concerts at in the Temple of Jupiter, and I saw Duke Ellington and Ella Fitzgerald once on that stage. It was like... And then when they were attacking it during the Civil War, I was like, I, I, can't, I couldn't believe it. It was because that was like one of the high points of my life. Anyway, it, go now. You can go now. You can also get Botox at every street corner in Beirut. It's like, <laughs> it's like the most popular thing. You have drive-up Botox. So. <laughs> Thank you. This will be maybe our last. Maybe our last. Um, I wonder if each of you could talk about two things. One is, what's the razor's edge in your work where um, on one side it, you find that you fail as a writer, sort of predictably like a habit that you have, where one side you fail and the other side you make it work. And then the second question is, what are you trying to learn now in your work? All right, you go first since I've been talking for half an hour. What was the first part? The razor edge where you feel like you fail. Oh, boy. Um, 
I'm, a, I'm drawn to lyric poetry, and, and musicality is very important to me. And so therefore, I think for me, the difficulty in writing is not, flow, is not allowing myself to go the easy route um, towards internal rhymes or things that I've done before. And I never, I'm very tough on myself, so I never feel that I have an entirely successful poem, hence I'm a, a constant editor and tweaker. Um, so, and because I'm a morning person and I wake up with a lot of creativity, but then it fizzles out due to the nature of the day climbing in on me, I think the razor edge, what feels like failure, is that inability to often come back to that place where the, the, um, the generative moment where the poem began. And that, for me, is the biggest challenge, um, is to return and develop. And so, for me, my, my, I guess my big critique of myself is I, ha would have, I do have a tendency to go towards pat endings. Um, that, that's what I want to reverse. And your second question was? What do I want to learn now? Well, actually, Ailish, you posted something. Ailish posted a couple weeks ago and was it an interview? It was a piece on um, Herbie Hancock. Do you remember when you posted that on Facebook? Yeah, that was it. Uh, so Herbie Hancock, Miles Davis had given Herbie Hancock this piece of advice when he was trying to overcome a creative uh, stagnant period. And I guess Herbie Hancock had been going through this horrible feeling that he couldn't get creative again. And Miles Davis didn't know it. He hadn't explicitly told Miles Davis, but they were playing together one time, and Miles Davis leaned over to Herbie Hancock, this was a great piece he posted, and he said, don't play the butter notes. And so that's my, that, I, I loved that, um, the way Herbie Hancock interpreted that, and there's a lot of artists in the room, so I think we can all learn from that. The way Herbie interpreted it was, don't go for the easy stuff. Don't go for the the, anything that you've done before, any of the chords that are easy, anything that's easy on the ear. And I remember actually in a different interview that I, uh, with Miles Davis, this connects with that. He had said um, he doesn't play ballads. Um, has anyone have, heard that interview before? He said he doesn't play ballads, and the interviewer asked him why he doesn't play ballads. He says, I love them too much. So the challenge now for me as an artist, and I have reached a phase where I'm ready to kind of move into the, a new creative phase, is to not play the butter notes and not do the ballads. So. That was such a nice answer. Um, <clears throat> you know, to me, the razor's had questions like, and what are your weaknesses when you're applying for this job? I work <laughs> too hard, <laughs> and I can't not think about work at night. But um, to be serious... Uh, my, my razor's edge is actually in my prose work where I stop, try, try to stay a poet and not be a prose writer. This novel has been happening forever because I spend too much time glistening segments of it and not moving. And I put it down while I was working on the galleys of this book, which has been quite recent. And I came back to it and I wrote the plot points down. And they were miles apart from each other. And so one of the things I have to do is like, put the poet girl in the closet and bring the novelist girl out. And while things do happen in this book, they kind of happen after you read pages and pages of lovely prose. So that, I think, is, the, um, is where my razor's edge is. And what I'm trying to learn from what I'm reading now is how to have 
let me back up a little bit. In writing the memoir and in writing my two books of poetry, there was a singular dominant voice that I controlled. And now I have to give up control to other voices and kind of let them in a seance kind of way inhabit my body as I write. So that's kind of where I, I really think I want to learn that. Some people do that really, really early. So I feel like I'm at a very elementary stage in that, very primitive place with that. So thank you for that lovely question, by the way. Questions. There's one more question back here. Um, this is a question for Kim. Um, when you were being introduced, I think, um, there was talk of what you do at the community college with um, literacy and world events. Mm -hmm. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Sure. I'm, I'm a poet, a leftist, and a dyslexia tutor, so this is um. what I'm interested Cool. Yeah. So um, 10 years ago, actually, we're heading into our 10th anniversary. Uh, some colleagues and I had decided to create a program. Uh, if you're familiar with higher education, it's very popular now to have first year experiences where freshmen are all sort of to read the same book and have discussions of it. But because we're a community college, we don't, um, we don't have a first-year experience with a lot of non-traditional students. So we created a program called the Community Book Connection, and we choose a text that we study um, for the whole entire academic year. And we have a list of criteria for the book. It should be accessible. It should be well-written. It should be well-researched. It should also relate to some relevant social themes. And we democratically select this text. And we encourage faculty to use it, although it's not a mandatory thing. But the thing that kind of distinguishes the program is that we, throughout the whole year, we have these academic and co-curricular, extracurricular events, field trips, lectures, panels, theater productions, film showings, so, so that we really try and, and um, foster community discussion, community engagement, student engagement. And um, this year, we're doing the Laramie Project. And I'm really, actually, thank you for asking that question, because it allows me to say that we've selected for next year a book. Um, I mean, I'm not diminishing Laramie Project. It's, a, it's been a great year. It's a fantastic book. But we've already selected next year's book, and it's called Prayers for the Stolen by Jennifer Clement. And I just want to say to everyone, if you haven't read it's a beautiful novel about living in Guerrero, Mexico, during, you know, as a woman. It's about the lives of girls and women as this narco-trafficking situation is going on. It's very beautiful. So that's what we're doing next year. Um, and I'd be happy to talk to you afterwards if you want to hear more about the program. Yeah, thank you. So did you want to read a poem, Miss? <laughs> Actually, I have a couple I want to finish with. Yeah, that's, that's fine. You that start, good? Yeah, you can read right from the table if you want to get No, I can do, I can do here. Okay. Because I had promised something borrowed, something, something borrowed and something. Well, I haven't done my borrowed. That's what I'm going to end with. So I have a couple I want to sort of finish with. Um, and, yeah. So I, this one was written, uh, I feel, can, is it okay if I mess with this? Yeah. Cool. Can you guys hear me? So I wrote this one during that crazy, um, well, the 2008 crash when they were bailing out the banks and not bailing out people. So that's what the context of this one is. And it's called Bail Me Out. We have fallen into the kingdom where all is mined a silent hall of one-sided mirrors, and I wonder, why is there all a wall, always a wall of men looking down on us, like guilt apostles, a pantheon of stony faces, bent on watching us wherever we go? 
They don't do a thing to lend a hand, but scrutinize. And like King Midas, everything they touch turns to a 24-carat mess. From the pits of this kingdom, I say, don't write to your senators. Don't tie up the congressional phone lines, because the sky is not falling. The sky is not falling. It already fell a long time ago. Don't you know? That's why they're still smiling. When I was hungry, they didn't give me to eat. When I was sick, they didn't think to fund a national health care plan. And when I was lost in the dungeons of this American prison, they put the key on the windowsill of their private chamber and went on with the plunder. And I see them up there, up in their rafters, a rushmore of pale faces. So now it's up to each of us to change the direction of our gaze. This system is dead. Tear down this wall. And the wall you spoke of. <laughs> right? <laughs> And since we're on the Lebanon theme, I also was in Lebanon doing research for my novel, which does also touch on the uh, Sabra and Shatila massacre. And while I was there, I was volunteering in a refugee camp. And we took a field trip out to the Latani River to take the kids. Like we, I was uh, volunteering, like teaching kids how to um, read and, and speak English better. So we took a little field trip, and we went to this river, and we went swimming, and I had a little breath-holding contest with one of the kids. And the, that is the basis for this poem is me and this kid holding our breath under the Latani River. It's called Breath Holding Contest in southern Lebanon. I give up, I say, to the Palestinian boy holding his breath beneath the ripples of a branch of the Latani River. I tap his shoulder and rise to the surface early, my chest half full of oxygen. I could have outlasted him. I give up, I say, but really, I let him win. Victorious, he grins without knowing. I've looked out of rain-washed windows and wept over an impossible love. I've tried with others to end the brutality of wars and to find fullness in a life that leaves us all empty-handed in one way or another. Someone ought to triumph in a landslide. Someone ought to smile and gasp with delight for a small victory almost worth dying for. I give up. I say to the child, though I haven't really. You win. You're it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and now I want to end with my borrowed. Um, this is one of my favorite poems by uh, Roque Dalton, who is the El Salvadorian um, left-wing poet who was actually assassinated by his own comrades, but who is very much beloved in El Salvador and wonderful poet. And it's a short poem, and I, I adore this poem, and it's sort of kind of a... Um, Uh, a mantra for me. Like You by Roque Dalton. And this was translated, by the way, by Jack Hirschman. Like you, I love love, life, the sky-blue landscape of January days. And my blood boils up, and I laugh through eyes that have known the buds of tears. I believe the world is beautiful, and that poetry, like bread, is for everyone. And that my veins don't end in me, but in the unanimous blood of those who struggle for life, love, little things, landscape and bread, the poetry of everyone. Thank you. In 2007, my friend, poet Suher Hamad, was in Palestine making a movie. And there are lots of stories around that time, and she was emailing me, practically every day with some kind of drama with licenses or something and here's an email that I got on June 1st 
Three days ago, the Israeli special forces assassinated a young man who'd been wanted in some kind of hiding in Ramallah. They shot him in the feet and then in the back as he was leaving the Nazareth restaurant, my spot. I went by the next day to sit with the men, all of whom greet me familiar now. They watched their friend walk out and then bleed to death for 45 minutes in front of their shop. The ambulance driver was shot trying to reach him. After breakfast, what do you do but sit and survey the tracks where the ambulance had stopped, yards away from the body, and see the flies gather where the driver was struck by bullets? The smoke in the air lingers days old, stale sorrow, the kind that settles into your throat, can't be coughed out, even when singing the old songs that erupt from the chest, the roughest way out, the notes as hard as pebbles. Your hangout, the cafe where the fool simmers fresh parsley and scallions in pots on blue flames, throws a shadow on a map of blood, drawn on the sidewalk where X, his feet are shot, where X, he is hit in the back, where X, the ambulance driver arrives, and X, the driver cannot navigate the storm of fire and fear, and X, the street fills with mourners, a matter of course. The words fly rocks and melodies. Each body is its own island, and the waters gather round, splashing against the shores, pushing a million heartbeats against the silence, exhaling a thousand zagrat, pumping into the lungs everything they have. Children are lost everywhere, and their bodies form land masses, a new diagram that must be inset into our geographies so we know where we stand. Sip tepid water slow now. Wait again for the beans to cool. The metal of the spoon stains your mouth. Leave sulfur on your tongue. You cannot eat here anymore, and you cannot leave. Thank you. Um, thank you so much. I know I speak for everyone, but I just say this has been a really special afternoon. So thank you, Kim and Elmas. I um, just wanted to remind everybody their books are for sale in that corner. Judy is selling them, so please buy them. Also, you can get on our email list and that table back there. And um, if you could take a minute to fill out um, an evaluation form about this program, those are on that table, and that's really helpful to the library so we can plan programming. Um, so thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for coming, everyone. Yeah, really. Thank you, library. <laughs>